So welcome to the ESPN Player Gridiron College Football Show. I'm Simon Clancy, along with Matt Sherry. Another busy weekend of college football, although if you're a Virginia Tech fan, I doubt you've left your room all week. We will deconstruct Old Dominion's takedown of the Hokies, ask if it's the biggest upset in college football history, try and figure out how Oregon lost to Stanford, although I'm not sure we'll have an answer, discuss the new starting quarterback at Clemson, and preview Penn State, Ohio State on Saturday night. But Matthew, nowhere else to start. But Foreman Field, Virginia, home of Old Dominion, who hosted the 13th-ranked Virginia Tech Hokies. They were 29.5-point underdogs, and yet they beat them like a man beats a drum at a festival. Two touchdowns are kind of akin to Torquay beating Real Madrid 5-3. They are an FCS school. They've only been playing football for 10 years. They are Owen. They were 0-3 coming into this, including a, a huge blowout loss to Liberty, also lost to Florida uh, International and to Charlotte. Just one of the most stunning stories of this or any season, really, isn't it? I mean, the most stunning story, maybe outside of Tiger Woods, is when on Sunday of the weekend. And I mean, frankly, probably the most stunning upset I can remember since since um, the Appalachian State uh, Michigan game that we did a piece on, actually in the in the magazine last year. You did a an oral history piece, Simon. I mean, incredible, absolutely incredible. Like just. And 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 just it it wasn't just the fact that they won the game. It was the fact that you know a kid cut in Blake Larusa comes into the game. He's thrown twelve passes in his college football life, and he goes thirty for forty nine for nearly five hundred yards and four touchdowns against uh, maybe the preeminent defensive coordinator in college football's defense. We give um, we give Bud Foster a lot of love after after the week one game against Florida State. But I mean. His defense just got shredded in this game by a kid that nobody had ever heard of. So stunning. This is why I think we, when we opened the podcasts on episode zero, we said one of the things that makes it so exciting is is you're always one week away from absolute disaster in college football, and and this was as big a disaster as anything I could ever remember. I mean, let, let's take Blake Larusa for a second because he'd been an occasional starter. He's five foot ten. Uh, when I say lightly recruited, there was essentially one team that was interested in him uh, coming out of high school, which was the Elizabeth City State University Vikings, the, the well-known Elizabeth City State University Vikings of the CIAA conference, which is um, it's essentially akin to pub football on a Sunday, really. I mean, if we're going to be brutally honest about it. And yet, Larusa looked like peak era Brett Favre slash Otto Graham slash Dan Marino slash Aaron Rodgers when he took apart but and it wasn't you know Virginia Tech it wasn't like Old Dominion came from behind to win it was Virginia Tech matching Old Dominion you know Old Dominion scored then Virginia Tech would have to score then Old Dominion scored again Virginia Tech would have to score and in the end they just couldn't do it and and, and LaRusso the kind of the signature moment was a sort of over the shoulder bucket dropped straight into the bucket touchdown catch to put them up 42-35 then they ran in a long touchdown to, to seal the win but it was just stunning to watch and you thought it can't happen it can't happen it's, it's old dominion I mean this I mean, is the, the thing with LaRusa as well is like I said he, he saw 12 passes this year but he played a little bit like a, a decent amount last year and at no point ever gave an indication that this could ever be in the pipeline like I mentioned Tiger Woods at least he was formerly the greatest golfer of all time like this guy is a complete nobody it's insane it's incredible and you, you look back over some of the some of the the biggest sort of point 
North Texas back in 97, beat Texas Tech um, back in 97, as I said. We talked about Appalachian State over Michigan. I'm looking at the, kind of the, the odds, really. James Madison beat Virginia Tech back in 2010. They were a 33.5-point underdog. I mean, Virginia Tech has lost a couple of... They also lost to Temple as a 35.5-point underdog back in 1998. Um, it, I mean, if you're Virginia Tech's head coach, what... What do you say in the locker room after after a game like that? How do you address the team when you go into that locker room afterwards and and try and pick up the pieces of that of that school? Because I mean, it's it's I just don't know where you start. Yeah, I mean, Justin Fuente was actually quite critical of the players after the game in in the sense that he essentially said that that these guys have been reading their press clippings too much and and that he. I think he said he liked the team a lot better when everybody told them they were rubbish. So I mean, that that seems to suggest that he thinks that that they just took their eye off the ball for this game. And he, he and called that, them undisciplined, didn't he? He called them undisciplined. Said we've got to own it and suck it up. And you know, Fuente is a no nonsense coach. You know, he's always been that way. But I just don't know how you pick that team up because. Old Dominion, they didn't luck. They didn't luck out. They deserved to win that team. And if you'd landed from Mars and were told which was the thirteenth ranked team in the nation, you would not be picking Virginia Tech. And that, I think, has got to be a fairly damning indictment of where Fuente is with that with that uh, program at the moment. Yeah, a, a bit of disappointment. And 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 frankly, it's it's bad news for the ACC. Which I mean, people, we've 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 criticised the the Big Twelve in the last couple of weeks, but the ACC is having a terrible season. I mean. Boston College this week as well, a team who were three and zero, and I think a lot of people thought could could maybe do a little bit of damage. They they lose meekly to a Purdue team who were who were on three, so it was a terrible, terrible weekend for the ACC. Every bit as bad, if not worse, than than how bad last week was for the Big Twelve. Let's get to the to, to the what was probably the best game of the season so far in terms of. Uh, up and down and that kind of classic college football it was ESPN's um, signature uh, commentary on uh, on sa- on Saturday night uh, college game day had been uh, outside Altson Stadium in, in, in Oregon ahead of Oregon hosting Stanford a, a great opportunity for the Ducks to get back on the national stop, uh, national spotlight with Justin Herbert a quarterback Heisman candidate NFL first round likely NFL first round pick Mario Cristobal's side just looking to get back to those Chip Kelly era days where they were competing for national championships and this would have been a statement win and somehow they managed to blow it they went up essentially they went up 31-7 at one point didn't they Matt because even though a touchdown was was controversially called back they they let and the game was they let and the game was over wasn't it I mean uh, and Stanford came back into it and then Oregon moved away again and literally were 60 seconds away from victory when CJ Vidal sort of scrambling for, for extra yardage fumbled. And, and can I just say, scrambling for ex- extra yardage when it was about to be third and one. Mm. Like, but also, also, Stanford had one timeout left. You could have taken consecutive knees and then punted on fourth down, pinning them deep, 
giving them about 15 seconds to try and drive the length of, of, of the field to score. I, I, I just question Mario Cristobal's decision-making towards the end of the game. The, the, only, the only thing I would say on that, I can, I can understand it more in college football than the NFL because I, I would never want to leave a, a, an end-of-game scenario. And, and maybe this has been burnt as a Michigan fan from the Michigan State game a couple of years ago. But I'd never want to leave that end-of-game scenario in the hands of a punt team because it, they're just so much more inconsistent than they are in professional football. And I think that I would favour the handoff to the running back. But you, you you have to tell the back, look, don't be extending the ball. If there's anything that you... The only thing you need to worry about here is keeping hold of the ball. The rest of it is largely irrelevant, I think. But it was just an incredible catalogue of events, wasn't it? From the from the um, the, the touchdown that was ruled out by Jalen Red, that where he touched the pylon and therefore um, was deemed out. Of, well, essentially they deemed him out of the one. Really, he was deemed out. Should have been at the, the half yard line. Mm. Two plays later, there was the, the the fumbled snap. Herbert loses the ball and it's, it's returned eighty yards for a touchdown, which began the comeback. KJ Costello, who I'd called inconsistent in the in the column last weekend in Clancy on campus, which you can you can get from the Gridiron website, um, he all of a sudden came alight using the big tight ends and, and using his massive. Uh, I was about to say using his massive weapon, which would have sounded awful. <laughs> using the, that massive, using the massive wide receiver JJ Arcega Whiteside, who was dominant down the stretch. Do Stanford view this as a get-out-of-jail-free card and therefore it gives them impetus heading into this huge game against Notre Dame, seven versus eight on Saturday night? Or are they worried now about the fact that really and truly they should have been blown out by Oregon? Um, Both. I mean, essentially this was the Patriots Falcon Super Bowl on acid in terms of the amount of the, the, the level of ludicrous ineptitude from Oregon at the end of the game. But, I mean, what what shouldn't be ignored is that We've seen Oregon teams generally really finesse teams in the past. They just dominated Stanford in the trenches, and I think that's a worrying sign ahead of a, a game against a Notre Dame team whose calling card is essentially their defensive line and and being good up front on the offensive line as well. So I, I would have initially thought that I would favour Stanford this week, even going into South Bend, but... At this point, I, I, I would have to give a, a fairly big edge to Notre Dame based on that. But I Ian, mean, Dean Book played very well, didn't he, for Notre Dame? At the yeah, and, and I think that's a big key because Brandon Wimbush is a guy who he, looking he blows back, hot and cold. Yeah, think, and looking back, he had a good game against Michigan in Week One, but in reality, it was a, a good game in which he just threw up a load of prayers and the wide receivers made great plays on the ball. I thought the offense just. Yeah, Book just fits that Brian Kelly yeah, style. He, he just so looks better, like a Brian he? Kelly quarterback, doesn't yeah. he? I mean, that's yeah. that's what it is. And and he, he was really impressive in a game that actually, I, I really thought Wake Forest, Notre Dame was upset alert last week. And I think it would have been if Wimbush had played because Wake Forest are a, are a decent team this year. They got them at home as well. So it's going to be a fascinating game. I mean, David Shaw can go into those guys at Stanford and he can say, look, we didn't do anything right, but we still won. We're still unbeaten. And if we go in and win in South Bend, then we've got a great chance at the college football playoffs. And, and I'm really impressed with Costello. I, I genuinely think Costello will be a first-round pick in a couple of years' time when all's said and done. Yeah. I'm really, really he, starting to... I'm, he, he, more than any other guy, is, is probably the player that over the course of the first few weeks of the season has, has opened my eyes more than any other player in college football. 
How how impressive? And you know, dear listener, we will talk throughout the season about players and projecting them to the NFL. How impressive was Justin Herbert's performance? Not just in the fact that they almost won, but he showed two traits that have continued to grow in his game. One is pinpoint accuracy. He is incredibly accurate. But the second and probably the most important thing is that he, his ball positioning and his ball placement is so good that he throws it only into areas with which, um, with which his receiver can catch them essentially he puts you know if it's a back shoulder throw it will be in the perfect back shoulder position if it's down you know if it's down and low it will be down into the outside so that it can't be touched by by the by the um the db the safety or the corner he he is a very impressive specimen inexperienced but impressive yeah i thought he was phenomenal i mean Talking about a guy who had completed, I think, 25 of 27 passes in regulation, which is just completely and utterly ridiculous. I think he's the favourite to be the first overall pick right now. I mean, the only the only caveat to that is, I think Dwayne Haskins can come out this year, and I've just read a mock draft in he which can, yeah. he gets taken 32 by the New England Patriots. Yeah, I saw the same. I, I, I'm a Patriots fan. If that happens, I'll cry with joy. There's no way in hell he gets past the top five and in reality it would be Haskins or Herbert right now as the first overall pick if both of that, those guys are in the on the board so that that's going to be that's going to be interesting but Herbert we, we said last week this was it was a big game in terms of the the prospects of both teams and and based on the way Oregon played they could have been a serious college football playoff contender with a with a win in this game and and they might still be because if they can if they can win out the rest of the year and potentially get back into the Pac-12 race and win that championship, then they could maybe avenge this and, and get in there. But we also said it was a huge game for Justin Herbert in terms of his NFL draft stock, and I think he passed the test with flying colours. And we saw last year that the NFL loves guys that are six foot five, fit all those prototypes in the way that Josh Allen did. This kid put in a display last night uh, on Saturday night that was was better than anything that we saw in, in two years of full start and for, for Josh Allen in college. So the arrow pointing firmly up for him. And, and as I say, I wouldn't be surprised if he's the first overall pick come, come next May. You are listening to the ESPN Player Gridiron College Football Show with me, Simon Clancy, and Gridiron Magazine editor Matthew Sherry. Matt, Oklahoma, how did they almost lose to the Black Knights of Army? Because, again... They a week after what was a potential trap game against Iowa State, they comfortably beat them, especially given what had happened the season before, losing to Iowa State at home and what essentially derailed them for a, a larger part of the year. They managed to get back into the playoff race with some terrific performances down the stretch. They were very, very lucky on on Saturday night, weren't they? I mean, some statistics, if you missed it, Army had 339 yards rushing, which opens up its own... I, I know they played the the way that they play in terms of the option, their option offense, um, much like Paul Johnson's option offense at, at Virginia Tech, if you, at um, Georgia Tech, if you've seen that. They also controlled the ball for a, an astonishing 44 minutes and 41 seconds uh, of regulation time. The game eventually went to overtime. That was a lucky, lucky escape for Lincoln Riley's team, wasn't it? Yeah, and 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 I think most teams get one of these a year. A, a game like this that you're not expecting to be close, that ends up being close, and if you get if you if you don't win it, you're in big trouble. But if you can get through it, 
it gives everybody a kick up the backside that they probably need, and and it gets things back on track. So I think I think Oklahoma will ultimately gain more from this game than they lose. Um, I always it's should, always shouldn't they overlooked Army though? Yeah, but it is always tough against when you don't play option very often. It's really tough to just game plan against it for one week, and I think this is the only one on the schedule this year. I can't think that usually there would be one on the schedule, so. It's a really tough scenario because it's it's so unique, it's so different in terms of the game plan compared to any other given week. That if if you're ever going to have a slip up game, these are the games that you're going to have them in because you're just not used to going up against it. There's an adjustment period. I think the good news for Oklahoma is Kyler Murray played well again. Certainly late in the game, made the throws that were needed. They would have won the game in regulation if it wasn't for a kicker missing from 33 yards, which is just mind blowing to me that a, a kicker even at this level can miss from from that close in. Um so I think it's a scare but listen, their their bigger their bigger problem for Oklahoma is the fact that they've got some teams in their conference now who are rising and one of them is is a Texas team who me and you essentially rode off two weeks ago and are now back in the mix. So I think I think that's the, there's bigger tests ahead for Oklahoma but I, I think I think they'll come out of this better because maybe the, the the way looking ahead and also the option is such a unique one-week challenge. How concerned would you be if you were a Sooner fan, um, and also if you're if you're uh, Mike Stoops, the defensive coordinator of the, of the Sooners? How concerned would you be about their inability to stop the run? We saw it uh, against Georgia last year in the in the playoff semi-final. They they they, they were unable to stop Sony Michelle and. Um, and uh, Nick Chubb uh, in that game and DeAndre Swift in fact how concerned would you be knowing that you're going to face teams who are consistently able to run the ball because you, ultimately you don't want to be ended up in a shootout down the stretch with a team that you know can continue to pound you and wear your defence down very I mean I think the worry with a, a team like Oklahoma is always that when they come up against a really well-rounded team, it's very difficult for them to win. They found that out against Georgia last year in a game where really they moved the ball pretty well, certainly in the first half. But it's very tough. Oklahoma are always going to be built on offense. I mean, that's just the way it seems to work in that conference. And it's very difficult to find a great defense in in the conference. So, so it's a it's a tough one. I'm I would be worried, and I'm not. I'm never ever really convinced that Oklahoma. No matter how good they are week to week in their in their division, I'm never really convinced that they're a team I could see winning a national championship for that reason. Because I think come the end of the season, you need to be able to do both things well. You may still see high scoring shootouts. We've seen that between Clemson and Alabama, but it's not like Clemson and Alabama were bad bad defenses. They were just unable to stop each other's offense. And I, I don't know. I just I always worry that a team like Oklahoma will get to a big CFP game and ultimately. They'll still score points on offense, but they won't be able to keep up because of their defense. And I think, they, I think the defense had looked really good the first couple of weeks of the season. So you thought maybe it's different, but this game's a stark reminder that that there are reasons to be concerned on that side of the ball for Oklahoma. Oklahoma got away with one. Mississippi State, not so much. We'd been talking up uh, the Bulldogs fairly vociferously um, and potentially looking to, you know do a feature on them given their excellent start to the season Nick Fitzgerald at quarterback defense looking really strong uh, and essentially they didn't even come close 
to getting near Kentucky. Lost 28-7, only had 209 yards of offense. The signature win uh, for the Kentucky for a Kentucky team and uh, and uh, um, Mark Stoops, kind of his biggest win in six seasons as coach there. They are now nationally ranked number 17 for the first time since 2007. Are they the second best team in the SEC? And, and just what went wrong with, with Mississippi State? Mm. It's interesting. I mean, I, 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 I think it might just be that Kentucky are really good. I mean, we're not used to saying that. It's not, they're a basketball school, effectively. But they seem to have got a collection of, of older guys together there. And I think that's important. It's... They, they seem like a really well-drilled, experienced unit. And the, you look at the, the makeup of that roster now, it's a lot of seniors and, and that kind of thing. It just seems like they've they've, they've got lightning in a, in a bottle a little bit there. And their record's incredibly good now. I mean, we all criticise Florida for losing to them, but Florida have bounced back pretty well from that and look a fairly decent team. Kentucky, I, I'm stunned by this because I really thought Mississippi State could could do some damage to kind of the, the Alabamas and Georgias of the world this year. But maybe that team's Kentucky. Talk to me a bit about Benny Snell, because another phenomenal performance by the running back. He's a, a dangerous player and difficult to take down, as, as Mississippi State's excellent defense found out the weekend. Yeah, and he's just a bruiser, isn't he? He's the, he's the yeah, he kind, really is. He's the kind of running back who you love to see in college football who... There's, there is not a defense that wants to see him lined up opposite them. I mean, he he really makes you he makes you work for every tackle, doesn't he? And he's he, he was hitting the hole great as well. I mean, the offensive line opens up some pretty nice holes for him, but he's shown he's shown a lot to me at the second level. He's and and, and in a different way to an elusive guy because he he generally is just trucking guys over. And yeah, he's a real powerhouse, and and that's what this is built around. They've got a great defense, Kentucky. It's that old formula, a, an experienced defense of guys who have really come together, and then they've got the running game on the other side, and the great running back who, and that can take you a long way, particularly in the SEC late in the season when when it gets a little bit colder in these outdoor stadiums, and you you've got that two headed monster formula working. It's it's difficult to play against. Do we owe Tom Herman an apology? We talked about it earlier on or we talked about him earlier on, obviously losing to Maryland in the first game of the season, the second straight year that the, the Texas had lost to Maryland. Things looked very um, ominous for him and very ominous for the program. The local media had turned against him. Uh, they were accusing him of being arrogant. All of a sudden, they've, they've come back. They've quietly won games. And in the last two weeks, they've knocked off USC and TCU. And it's not even been close. Playing really good football, really solid football. Sam Erlinger looking very good on the center. Did we get it wrong about Tom Herman? Do we owe him an apology? And just how? Because they're right back in the mix now, aren't they? In terms of the in terms of the conference, how good is this Texas team? And did they just get off to a slow start? I mean, they look they look really good. There's there's a lot of talent on the defense. Uh, I thought the defense was really impressive in this game. I didn't really take a lot from the USC game because I just don't think USC are very good, but. This was a great win. I mean, we said last week how impressed we were by TCU against Ohio State. And and I think this was a tough follow-up game. I mean, you've just been in a really tough game against a great team in Ohio State, and then you have to go on the road to Texas, which quietly is becoming a much more intimidating road atmosphere than it ever used to be. It was kind of a, a bit old boys clubby in, in, in years gone by. But I mean... The last couple of weeks, it's been it's been a fierce atmosphere there. And as you said, I think we do owe Tom Herman a bit of an apology. I think he he was undermined a little bit by his own arrogance, and it seems like from from the cuts I've seen of him getting interviewed, he's reining that in a little bit. Maybe 
that was a little bit of the wake-up call he needed early in the season. But Sam Ellinger's playing great. I mean, I don't think he's thrown an interception since that disappointing opening week. And they're absolutely in the mix now. I mean, they've got... They've got every opportunity in that division. Now you're looking at Oklahoma, Texas, West Virginia, the three teams to me after Oklahoma State got knocked off by Texas Tech, who, who also, to be fair, look like they could, they could further upset the apple cart a little bit as well. So I think that whole division is, is becoming fascinating, but I think it's becoming fascinating because maybe, maybe Oklahoma proved to be this, but it almost feels like, there's not one team in that division that is of that Clemson, Alabama, Georgia type dominance. And that ultimately makes it a much more interesting race because we're going to see some big games later in the season. The Red River game between Texas and Oklahoma, for example, that are really going to essentially determine the outcome of the division. 6th of October, they host Oklahoma. The bell will toll for Texas football on that day, won't it? I mean, that will be an absolutely crunch game, not only for Tom Herman and a sort of uh, a reckoning as to where the program is, but also in terms of the Big 12 Championship, because if they win that, then all bets are off. Yeah, and then the the old Texas is back hashtag, if they do win that, is is one that can be used again. Because I think, I think if they did win that, it would be slightly early in Tom Herman's tenure if they, if they won the division. I mean, that's a tough division this year with West Virginia as, as well with Will Greer, so... If they can win the division this year, that's a that's a real um, feather in the cap of, of, of Herman. Do you think that if they beat Oklahoma, then they beat Oklahoma State, who have been ranked, then they go, then they beat West Virginia and go on the road and beat Texas Tech? How close do you think that an eleven and one team, whose one defeat came in the first game of the season, and then had beaten TCU, USC, both ranked teams, Oklahoma? Oklahoma State, West Virginia, and Texas Tech—all ranked teams. How close do you think that would get them to the top four? I think that I think they'd be in with that. I mean, do you? Yeah, I mean, if if ever you're going to lose a game, lose it in week one, and yeah, even, even against even against Maryland, because we've seen in the past that the the further away the game gets, the further it leaves the mind. And and I mean, you, you look at it. I mean, I remember Penn State a couple of years ago when they were very unfortunate not to not to get in the playoff. Um, they, they lost, I think, two of their first three, and very nearly were two and three, and then they ended up ended up beating Ohio State, and and it, it happens. I mean, teams, some teams just don't start the season well, and then they gradually pull it together, which is why I think we'd like to see a bigger playoff. There's often a team that has two losses, even that is really rounded into form by December and could probably win the CFP, or we don't get a see so. Down the line, that's why I'd like to see it expanded. But I, th- I think they'd get in. I really think they'd get in. It depends on a lot of these other teams who are up there losing games. But I think based on the fact, this is a fascinating discussion for us to have down the line, Simon. But if Alabama plays Georgia in the SEC championship game, now there's a, there's a scenario where both of those teams are unbeaten entering that game. But you essentially have a neutral field quarterfinal. Would you put both teams in the CFP still? Um, it's a very good question. I don't know that I know the answer to I, it. I, I, um, I feel I, like the committee might, but I don't I think th- they should. Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't, but I think the committee would. Yeah, so that's that's the problem. If if that materialised, then two spots are going to be taken. But the brand that Texas are gets them in as well. I mean... A lot of those voters are going to want Texas in there. It's great for ratings. They're one of the kind of big schools everyone wants to see in. So Texas, Texas, 
with that record, probably are going to be looked upon more favourably than Stanford if they're a one-loss team who've also yeah. won their division. The situation in the Pacific is worse than reported. The Japanese are planning something big. What's the target? Midway. From the director of Independence Day. A couple dozen planes. It's all Japanese fleet. We got the order to launch. Discover the incredible true story. Today we're going to be underdogs. Of the World War II battle. Good luck, boys. Fire! Midway. Download and keep now. Fill the trolley with your favourite brands on rollback at Asda. A 38-pack of Fairy Non-Bio Capsules was £8.50, now £5.75. And Lenore Gold Fabric Conditioner was £4, now £2.50. Big brands, small prices. Don't compromise. Asda. Save money, live better. Selected stores subject to availability. Lenore, 1.925 litres. Ends 18th of March. A couple of quick hitters just to rattle through quickly. We touched very briefly on Boston College, but not a good, not just a disaster actually for Boston College losing to Purdue and a disaster for AJ Dillon, 3.1 yards per carry, the end of his Heisman hopes. Just all around, you know, kicking themselves in the, you know, shooting themselves in the foot, kicking themselves in the face there for BC. Yeah, dreadful. And I mean, as I, as I alluded to earlier, dreadful for the conference as well, because, I mean, it doesn't shine yeah. them in a good light at all. But, yeah, as you say, the Heisman hopes do end for A.J. Dillon there. That's the problem with, with kids at kind of the non-enormous schools. Like, Tua could have a bad game for Alabama and still win it, probably. But when, you, when you're playing for one of these lesser schools, you're essentially one bad game away from being out of the picture. And uh, that's, that's exactly what happened last weekend. It's a, it's a bad, bad game for both the team and the player. Miami... And Cozy Perry came in for Malik Rozier, the, who's flattered to deceive pretty much at two schools now. How, I mean, uh, Mark Richt hasn't named a starter yet, but surely after his performance, uh, the weekend and Cozy Perry is going to be the, he's the true, he's the, um, red shirt freshman. He surely should be the guy who, who, who takes them forwards essentially into UNC because it's a, a fairly easy game for him to bid into. Then ahead of a slightly different, more difficult run, Florida State, who obviously aren't playing well, but that, that game, you tend to throw the form book a little bit out the window in terms of that. You've got Boston College coming up. You've got Duke who are ranked. You'd like to think that Perry, you know, gets gets playing pretty soon because it looks like the future is his, doesn't it? Yeah, and this is so similar to me to the Notre Dame situation in which you've got a quarterback in place who is erratic, um, can can produce moments but never shows any consistency, and then a guy has come in underneath him in the same way Ian Book did last week and. And looked a, and looked a, a just a, a much better fit for what you're trying to do, much more confident and and generally much more reliable. And I always favour that guy in in college football. I mean, we we see guys who are boom and bust, but for for really good teams, not to the level that either Malik Rozier or um, or Brandon Winbush were for for Notre Dame. So I, I think it's a very very similar situation at both schools, and I would definitely favour Perry and 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 Buck in in both battles. I think. Just how bad was Nebraska's performance against Michigan? They were down thirty-nine, nothing at, at at the half. Ended up, you know, they they sort of kept it slightly together in the second half uh, in terms of not getting in the sixties, seventies, eighties. And in fact, overlook that question. How bad is it for Scott Frost? And how much latitude will Scott Frost get now that they're zero and three? They just look absolutely bereft of talent, given you know. Uh, Adrian Martinez, Stanley Morgan, a couple of other players. 
just how bad is it for them and how much work does Frost have on his hands and will he be afforded the opportunity to actually put that together yeah I mean I definitely think he will be this is the the kind of kid done well coming back I think he gets a a long time and I think he'll do a good job I mean the thing with college football is you can you can afford more than in in any other kind of big ticket environment you can really afford a year and a half two years to start to get it together provided we're seeing we're seeing signs of progress and it's difficult. It's difficult going into a situation like Nebraska, a power who who have really declined for several years. So it was never going to be an easy job. I think I thought it would look better than it does so far, but by the same account, I still think that it will look better down the line, even though it's not yet. I, he's got a long way to go. I think this game actually was a little view into the potential of Michigan. I was so high on them at the start of this season because... For the last two seasons, they've looked just a quarterback away, and they've got a quarterback now. So, I think if that running game's going well, it takes the pressure off the quarterback a bit, and then they maybe start to open it up for Shea Patterson. We see what Michigan can really be because I I don't think there's a huge talent difference between Michigan and basically any other team in college football. So, I think it's an insight into Michigan more than it is Nebraska because I think Nebraska, it's a difficult job certainly this year, and and I think we start to judge Scott Frost a decent way into next season. The one place it does hurt them, though, and I said this last week, Nebraska's kind of the superpower that never should have been because of how difficult it is to recruit in that area so that most of their recruits are going to come from out of it because there's no talent there. So it is difficult to sell guys who are interested in five, who are drawn interest from five schools, many of whom are closer to where they're from, on moving to, to Lincoln, Nebraska. So... That's where I think it hurts them, but I, I really believe in Scott Frost. I think he can coach guys up, and I think he, I think he's got a quarterback, which I think is the most important thing. So I, I, I'm not going to be judging Nebraska anytime soon. Speaking of quarterbacks, we are a Trevor Lawrence-friendly podcast, if you don't know. Uh, we definitely are. He threw four touchdowns against Georgia Tech in the win over Georgia Tech. Uh, Kelly Bryant had been injured the week before. Lawrence had, begin, had begun to take more snaps, taking more control of the offense. He has now been given the reins. He will now start from this point forwards. Dabo Swinney announcing it earlier this week. That's got to be great news for a Clemson team who must be watching. Swinney must be looking at what's happening in uh, in Tuscaloosa and seeing Tua Tunga-Vailoa and what he's able to do with that team and the latitude he's afforded with the reins in his hands. Dabo must think that Trevor gives them the best opportunity to win the national championship this year, surely. Yeah, and I think he's wanted to do this from day one. I mean, forgive the sin again me, but it, it's not coincidental to me that it's it's four games, I think, that that Brian's been involved in, which means he, he can't have it as a, as a red shirt. Yeah, so they, they're not going to be able to... Brian isn't going to be able to transfer immediately, so they keep him as the backup. But I think they wanted to make this... I think Davos, when he wanted to make this move from the minutes that the semi-final ended last year of the CFP, because you could just see that they, they, they couldn't throw the ball against Alabama and they lost that game so easily and he needed a guy who could throw it he knows he's got it in the program fascinated to see what Lawrence looks like now there's a big difference between the pressure of essentially coming in in the second third quarter of games and trying to impress to having the full game plan for the whole week knowing that you're you're going to be the guy not putting the pressure on yourself to make big splash plays that might earn you the starting job I think this completely frees Lawrence up and not just in Tuscaloosa. I mean, Davos, when he's always going to be looking at Tuscaloosa with the roots he's got in that program as a, as a former player there. But 
look at Ohio State as well and what they're doing with Dwayne Haskins and it seems the college football's going this way now with kind of a little move away from from the running games we've always seen in the past to these great young passes Simon that me and you were talking about every week and I know separate to this podcast are really excited about as well. So Clemson have themselves one of those. And I think we'll see the very, very best of him now he's being given the job properly. And and Syracuse this week is an int- intriguing game because Syracuse have had a, a great start of the season. Only team to beat, to beat Clemson last year in the regular season. Admittedly, that was at Syracuse and not at Clemson like this one will be. But I think that's going to be a really interesting game to watch on, on ESPN Player in that five o'clock window. What, uh, let's look ahead to the weekend. A number of big games. You just mentioned Syracuse, Clemson, but the two biggest games that stand out, like the proverbial, the proverbial sore thumbs there, uh, are Penn State, Ohio State, um, and Notre Dame, Stanford. Let's start with Penn State, Ohio State in Happy Valley. Should be a, an enormous crowd and an incredible atmosphere. There will be a whiteout. Everybody will turn up in white. So the atmosphere, it will just look Phenomenal, won't it? It will be a hell of a game between between these two number numbers eight against number four in the in the country. And where do you see this one being won? Two interesting quarterbacks, the very experienced Trace McSorley at Penn State versus the inexperienced but monumentally talented Dwayne Haskins of Ohio State. Urban Meyer recalled that when he was. Uh, when he first arrived at Ohio State, he called him the, or in fact, when he signed his letter of intent, that he said that he was the best quarterback he'd ever seen coming out of high school, which is, which is obviously praise indeed. Where do you think that, um, this game will be won and lost? Because it feels like in Miles Sanders, the Nittany Lions have now established a running game, replacing Saquon Barkley. Mike Gesicki is obviously gone, but you know, he has, uh, talents out of the wide receiver in the tight end position but with Sanders you know he blew up for 22 carries 200 yards three touchdowns at the weekend it feels like they've got a running game they've got offensive powers that can you know can move the ball on her on on Ohio State try saying that uh, <laughs> alliteration when you can and, and and Gary Patterson's TCU proved that you can move the ball on the ground against this defense can't you despite the fact that you know there are Serious players at pretty much every level of that of that Ohio State de- Ohio State defense, especially you know in that interior defensive line led by Draymond Jones, but Nick Bozer obviously out. I, I I personally think that that Penn State will be able to move the ball on them, especially on the ground. Where where do you see this game being won and lost? I mean, it starts in the stands for this game for me. This is this is probably the toughest environment that you can face in in any season. The Penn State. Wide out night is one of the most insane atmospheres in college football. 100,000 fans dressed in white, making an insane amount of noise. Michigan were against them in it last year and were 14-0 down in the blink of an eye. And, and you've got no chance to recover from that. So it starts there for me. I mean, it's very different to to playing TCU in a in essentially a neutral site game where actually you probably had the, the lion's share of the fans. So... That, that conquering that challenge is the starting point for Ohio State. Then you get into the into the in-game matchups. Trace McSorley's a, a guy who his head coach has said, look, all this guy, kid has ever done throughout his life is win. He's won every game again this year. They've got, you mentioned the ground game, but I actually think they've got the wide receiving weapons to cause an Ohio State secondary that seemingly can be got at more than usual this year. Some real problems. I could see... I could see them throwing the ball a lot in this game and, and really making some big plays down the field. This could be an awesome game because I think Penn State's defense can be got at as well. It's not 
it's not like that is a, a group that you, that Dwayne Haskins won't fancy. I mean, they haven't played amazing this year. They're very young on defense, so I think this could be a real high high score and slobber knocker of a game. It it if any game left on the college football schedule this season, this might be the most exciting. The only thing I'd say for Ohio State is it they're kind of playing with house money because I, I, I don't think it's a no lose scenario because if they win the game. It's going to be such a big win that voters will remember. Winning that game in that environment will be enormous for their CFP credentials, and they've they've got a free shot at it because they'll they'll meet them again if they lose. So there almost isn't a lose scenario for for Ohio State, but outside of obviously you lose a game in the division, and then if you lose another game, you're in big trouble. But if you lose another game to a Michigan or anybody else anywhere, you're in huge trouble. So. It's a fascinating one. I think it's it's going to be an amazing game. I can't wait for it. What about uh, the other big game then, Stanford against Notre Dame? We've talked about both these teams. Ian Book taking over. Do you expect to see Brandon Wimbush at points, perhaps even running a wildcat? Because uh, Stanford seemed confused at times, especially the way they played off the Oregon receivers. Justin Herbert was able to move the ball pretty much with impunity up and down the field for most of the game. There has to be encouraging signs for Notre Dame thinking that they can hurt Stanford but on the flip side of that David Shaw just showed off once again why he's just such a phenomenal coach they never seem to get too high they never seem to get too low even when they were down 31-7 it almost felt like Shaw was just exuding the fact that they were still in the game somehow some way do you think that you know Brian Kelly's no mug either but do you think that David Shaw's experience and just his quality of coaching will enable Stanford to overcome this one uh, no, I really think Notre Dame are going to win, and I think Notre Dame. I think Notre Dame are going to win this, and then I think they will almost certainly get in the playoff because I just don't see them losing a game after this one. Uh, their, their schedule, their schedule looks pretty simple after this one. I mean, if you look before the season, I think they've got Florida State in there, so you'd have said that was a game that that really could define their season. But if if you don't believe they're going to be Florida State at this point, then you'd. I don't know. You maybe you maybe are really just an ardent Florida State fan. I mean, you're a Florida State fan, Clance, a lot, and you know full well no that there's no way to win that game. The no only chance. the only other game I see on the schedule is Virginia Tech on the road. Straight after this one is is tricky. I mean, but we're talking about a team who lost to Old Dominican last week at USC at the end of the season. Looks tough again, but in reality, is it that tough? Maybe not this season. Syracuse, but at home. This is such a massive game for Notre Dame because it, can you see a scenario in which the, the committee don't put an unbeaten Notre Dame team in the playoff? I think it's unlikely, I've got to say. So, And I think this is the one game that stands in their way of that. And I think they'll win, I really do. If, if Winbush was playing, I would give the edge to Stanford, but I really, really liked what I saw from Ian Book last week. And not just in terms of the physical ability, which... I mean, I don't think it's necessarily going to be off the charts, but more in terms of what we said earlier, in that he just looked like a good fit for the offence, for the Brian Kelly offence. He was a Brian Kelly-type quarterback in a way that I don't necessarily think Wimbush was. So I, I really think Notre Dame are going to win this game. And, and, and I'm, I'm not as high on Stanford as I was pre-Oregon. I mean... Yeah, they should have been blown out. They, they, they won that game. They should have been blown out. Yeah, they should have lost that. Big. I, I mean, mean, do you think if you're if you, if you're Brian Kelly, you must be looking at what CJ Verdell and Jalen Red and 
Justin Herbert, frankly, were able to do on the ground and think that this is a game prime for Dexter Williams to, to, to really break out as their sort of number one running back. Yeah, and you mentioned, you mentioned about Wimbush, but actually I think their running game is going to be better with Buck in there, simply because, I mean, Buck showed an ability to move a little bit as well, but yep. it, it stops the fact that they've shown an ability to pass the ball down the field with this kid stop Stanford loading the box in the same way that they could with Wimbush. Because, I mean, you take your chances with Wimbush, don't you? You, you play man-to-man coverage and you just you kind of just let him have his shots down the field one-on-one. You, I don't necessarily think you're going to do that with Buck. So I, I think Notre Dame would, will see Buck as a potential to enhance their run game. And I, and I think that gives Stanford more problems. But it's interesting, though, because then on the other side of that, as I say, I like Costello, I really like Bryce Love. What I love about Stanford is the way they find matchups. I mean, they've got a lot of big tight ends, big kids who just kind of go up and get the ball. And that's really tough for any defense to defend. So I think it'll be a, I think it'll be a close game, but I think I really give the edge to Notre Dame, particularly again, night game in another one of those environments. We saw Michigan really shrink in that environment in week one. That's a tough place to go and play a night game. And, and it's a really tough environment for, for Stanford to go into, particularly. Again, after the emotional high of last week, that could work both ways. It might be that they get to they get to South Bend and are actually just a little bit mentally drained. Before we get out of here, let's have a quick look at the Heisman Trophy race. Um, and essentially, it's it's impossible, really, certainly for me. And uh, and you'll be able to see the the list on the Clancy on Campus uh, article on the website goes up every week. Uh, I still have Tua Tonga Vaila as the uh, as the Heisman favourite. He's the number one on my list just because his performances are so astonishing. Again, this weekend, you know, Aggies, Texas A&M played them tough for a little while. He was 22 of 30, 387 yards, four touchdowns. He threw the first third down incompletion of his, um, of the season, which is an astonishing figure in itself. Do you, I mean, it's interesting. And you mentioned it earlier on in terms of, um, in terms of AJ Dillon at Boston College, Tua can be afforded an average game and it won't knock his momentum. He doesn't look like he's got an average game in him, does he? No, I mean, it, it, it's, it, it, it's best college quarterback I've ever seen stuff, to be honest. Mm. It, it's just a guy is an absolute freak. It's a, it's a joke. And, I mean, you almost feel like they're, they're not utilised him as much as they could do because he could probably run the ball more than he does and, and be effective in that way as well. I mean, he's just, he's an insane talent. I mean, mm. Alabama having a quarterback like that is mind blown, really. Because it's never been, they've never had, they've never had that before. You know, Alabama have been so good, won so many national titles, but they've never had a quarterback like this before, which is, which is absolutely terrifying. He, he is, astonishingly good he has to be number one on this list at the moment I think just ahead of Haskins and I think Kyler Murray takes a little step back because the the numbers weren't eye-popping I thought he made some great plays against Army one touchdown run in particular where he Mm. showed a burst of speed that was just ludicrous for a quarterback I marked him down two positions in part because of the tightness of the game and obviously that's not all his fault and he was certainly hindered by the fact they only had the ball for 15 minutes in regulation 
but also performances around him. You know, Haskins stays at number two for me, but it's hard to ignore Will, the job that Will Greer is doing. Five touchdowns, 385 yards passing again. And then Darrell Henderson, the running back we talked about last week from Memphis, who kind of went off back-to-back 200-yard games. And is he an enigma? Was that, you know, 188 yards rushing, two more touchdowns. He has 633 yards rushing in the last three games alone, which is that he leads the nation. He's hard to ignore as well. That for me is kind of the, your top five, and you can pick and choose whichever order. Justin Herbert, I think, you know, on a national stage, certainly put himself. In I, the think if, I, I think if I think if Oregon would have would have won the yeah, game, he'd be, he'd be in the top five, wouldn't he? Me too, me too. Listen, before we get out of here, don't forget um, you can sign up for a monthly or annual pass to get ESPN players extensive coverage of college football. That includes seven hundred plus games this season, live and on demand. And, and let me tell you, on a Saturday on a Saturday night. You will find Matthew and I, uh, as we have no lives, essentially flicking around between four or five different games. One game goes to commercial. Let's flick over to another. I must have watched kind of bits of 10 games, I suppose, over, over the period of Saturday afternoon and evening. And then the first half of Stanford, Oregon, got up and watched the second half on on demand. So it is a very, very worthwhile, uh, purchase, very worthwhile system. You'll also get three channels simulcast directly from the US. That's ESPNU, the SEC Network, and the Longhorn Network. And access to a great range of documentaries. If you've ever seen any of the ESPN 30 for 30 catalog, there are so many great uh, documentaries on there. From the incredible OJ Simpson documentary, which is just mind-bogglingly, breathtakingly, Oscar-winningly fantastic. There's also Roll Tide War Eagle, Catholics v. Convicts, The U Part 2, Part 1, Part 2. Uh, I, I'm actually in the middle of watching... Uh, the Brian Bosworth documentary, which if you don't know anything about the Boz, um, you know, I was, I, I'm old enough to remember him being at, at Oklahoma and the, just the, the phenomenon that he was. It is a magic, it's been a magic first 40 minutes of that documentary just to dip back in. The, the best there never was, the Marcus Dupree story is phenomenal. Elway to Marino, you know, you, you will, there is endless fun there, definitely. And if, if that wasn't enough, when you sign up, you do get a seven-day free trial. Matthew, any more for any more before we get out of here? This is going to be an amazing week of college football. It is. This is probably the one it I'm is. most excited for, so enjoy it. Fingers crossed. We shall be back next week. Don't forget Clancy on campus. Don't forget the video with the previews that I uh, continually get wrong in terms of who will win. I think I called uh, Nebraska as having a chance to beat Michigan, so you should never listen to me for any tipping or betting advice or any of that sort of thing uh, we should be back next week with another episode of the podcast enjoy the weekend's games we are out of here four days like no other a festival like no other for a bookmaker like no other bet fred get up to 40 pounds in free bets when you sign up using promo code chelp 40 and stake 10 pounds on any cheltenham race bet fred at the heart of cheltenham 18 plus, new UK customers only. Available from March 6th to March 13th. £30 free bets credited within 10 hours of first bet settlement. Extra £10 free bets credited if first bet loses. Full terms at betfred.com slash promotions. Keep it fun. Begambleaware.org.